Today I want to turn our attention once again to a king that the last time I had the, the opportunity to speak here in this pulpit we talked about, and his name is Hezekiah, and I just, as I was preparing for this time to minister the word of the Lord, could not get away from one verse of scripture that I would like to bring to us today. And we join the story of this man of God in a moment when he had just gotten word that the enemy was advancing against the nation of Judah, breathing threats and boasting their strength. Literally, the enemy was listing the nations that they had conquered up to that point, including the northern kingdom of Israel, Hezekiah's Israelite brothers and sisters. King Sennacherib is the enemy and Assyria is the nation, and they were poised to launch an attack of hundreds of thousands of troops to wipe Judah off the map. And the scripture says this, this is the response of the man of God, King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19, 1, beginning at verse 1. When he heard their report, he tore his clothes and he puts on burlap and he goes into the temple of the Lord. Pretty good place to go when you're facing trouble, amen? And he sent for Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests, all of them dressed in burlap, symbolizing their mourning and their sorrow and their humility. And they send for the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. not a bad person to reach out to when you're facing trouble, the man of God in your life. Amen? You skip down to verse 14, and Hezekiah, he receives the letter from the messengers of the enemy. He reads it, and he goes to the Lord's temple, and he spreads it out before the Lord. The Bible says that Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. Not a bad thing to do as well when you're facing trouble, to go before the Lord in prayer. And he prays this, O Lord God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. And so bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. He's in a state of desperation, and his only prayer that he can pray is, Lord, please hear me, and please see me where I am. And he declares in verse 17, it is true, Lord. Look at your neighbor and say, it is true. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria, they have done what they've said they've done. They've destroyed every one of these nations that they've listed. And they've thrown down the gods of these nations into the fire. And they have burned them. But then the prayer shifts. But of course, he says, the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all. Only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. And so now, O oh Lord our God, rescue us from his power. And then all the kingdoms of the earth will know. And here's my declaration. You alone, O oh Lord, are God. In this story, just like so many others in Scripture, we see the people of God facing down an impossibility. And Hezekiah has laid out the reality of his situation, literally and proverbially speaking, before God, acknowledging his desperate need for God's intervention in his life. And he looks at the list of accomplishments of his enemy, 
And it's almost as though he does his own little fact check in the moment. If you've been watching the news media, that's a, a popular phrase that they throw around. Oftentimes, I don't think it really means that much, but fact check. And, and Hezekiah, he's, he says, God, Assyria's power and their track record and their list of accomplishments and victory, fact check, true. But this is not a strange place for the people of God to be in. And you don't have to look very far to find others that faced impossibilities. People like Abraham and Sarah, to whom barrenness was a fact. You look at Moses and the Israelites at the shore of the Red Sea. The impassable water, fact check, true. You look at Joshua and the Israelites looking at Jericho and the impenetrable walls. They are a fact looming large in their face. But as people of God, we understand that Jesus specializes in working in the realm of impossibility. The facts of life may seem to have us gridlocked. And maybe you've even come to the service today feeling like your faith is frail and that it has fallen short of what is necessary. But there is a truth today that we can get a hold of that is greater than any fact that may be in front of us. And so today, my title that I would like to share with you for a little bit, maybe I've been watching a little bit too much news, but my title is We Choose Truth Over Facts. If you know, you know. We choose truth over facts. A couple of years ago, I, I was listening to a message by a minister by the name of Robert Tisdale, and he shared this illustration and Later, I went and I researched and found an article, no doubt, that he probably had, had seen. It's from smithsonianmag.com. And the title of the, of the article is, Why the Tomato Was Feared in Europe for More Than 200 Years. It is documented that many people in the 1500s and beyond, they carefully avoided the tomato because it was believed to be poisonous. John Gerard, he cultivated and he studied the tomato, and he found that the tomato plant is a member of the deadly nightshade family. Now, nightshade can kill you rather quickly if you ingest enough of it. There's a reason that you don't see the tomato greens in your salad and just the tomato fruit. Spoiler alert, a tomato is a fruit. Some of you didn't know that. It has seeds, praise God. John Gerard's thought process was that, well, if the plant is poisonous, you can understand the deduction going on in his mind. Well, then the fruit must also be poisonous. And this toxic view, it was, it was rooted in a degree of truth, and it perpetuated in the minds of many for many years. And nobody would argue with it. I mean, why would they? Why would they bother trying to change public perception about about the tomato plant, maybe, maybe they had seen their livestock get into a tomato plant one time and keel over, thus perpetuating this, this idea. There are several other reasons that the, the tomato got a bad rap, but with all things considered, the general consensus was that tomatoes were not safe to eat. And for over 200 years, at least that is documented that we know of, People from England and also the North American colonies at the time, they refused to eat the tomato 
avoiding it like some sort of red plague. So imagine with me a world in which there is no pizza. It's a sad world, isn't it? Let's come back from that world for a moment. No salsa for your nacho chips. It just doesn't seem right. I don't think nacho chips would even exist if that were the case. No spaghetti and marinara. God forbid, no ketchup. I, they say there's tomatoes in there. I, I've never seen one, have never tasted one, but they say it's in there. Suffice it to say, it would be a sad world. Now, this idea, it remained prevalent here in North America until a man by the name of Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson of Salem, New Jersey, he challenged what people thought they knew to be true. He saw the fact, let me say the fact, the fact that the collective society had arrived at, and he decided to challenge the status quo. And as the story is told, it was Colonel Johnson who on September 26th, 1820, once and for all, proved tomatoes non-poisonous and thus safe for consumption. And he did this by standing on the steps of the Salem courthouse and bravely consuming an entire basket of tomatoes without keeling over or suffering any ill effects whatsoever. He did, just so you know, have a medic on hand just in case. Johnson's public stunt, it garnered a lot of attention. And North America's love affair with the tomato was off and running. And we know what life is like now. And we thank God that we know what life is like now with pizza and salsa, the sauce, not the dance, and ketchup and marinara and anything else that you can get out of a tomato. Can we just thank the Lord for a moment for the blessings of God? <laughs> Now, you're wondering maybe what in the world does that have to do with anything? Uh, me too, actually. No, I'm just kidding. Here's the point. It is a fact. Take it to the bank. Fact check true that the tomato plant can be deadly. It is a part of the nightshade family. And some of the chemical that makes it poisonous, known as tomatine, it can be found in the tomato fruit as well only in much lower and much safer levels. That's why, you know, unless you're, you have arthritis or something, you don't eat tomatoes or whatever, that's why when you eat them, you don't die. <laughs> because we can manage it. It's not that big of a deal. But when people of that day came in contact with a fact that they knew to be true, they stopped right there and they never pursued anything beyond that fact to know the greater truth about tomatoes. The truth is, tomatoes, again, are safe to eat. And you see, sometimes the enemy of truth is something that is true. Tomatoes are from this deadly family. Fact check, true, yes. And to change the perception of tomatoes, it took somebody coming along to confront what was and is a fact with a higher level of truth. You see, sometimes the enemy of you tapping into God's truth for your life is, and, and the reality that, that he can turn things around for you is a stubborn fact in your life. Perhaps for you, it's a di uh, disease diagnosis, something that the doctor has delivered your way. 
And it, it seems impossible, and by all accounts, it is impossible. It's a stubborn fact. Maybe it's a bank statement. Maybe it's an unsaved loved one. Maybe it's a trauma from your past or a hurt that never healed. Maybe it's job loss, betrayal, barrenness, and everybody say impossibility. Because no matter what that fact may be in your life, fact check, it's true. It is looming large, and it's difficult to make your way through to the other side. And all too often, I believe we allow the truth of a situation in our lives keep us from pressing into the territory of the miraculous because we so easily accept our reality and we begin to believe that things can never change because after all, it's a fact. And like Sarah in the Old Testament, we can at times scoff at the notion that God can actually help us because our impossibility looms large. In Genesis 18, the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, Wherefore, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a, a surety bear a child which am old? Let me, let me just break that that statement of Sarah down for a moment. She says, can I really embrace the truth that I will bear a child in light of the fact that I am old? I'm supposed to believe what God has spoken despite what I see? I'm old, God. Fact check, true. Fact check, I've got a barren womb, God. I am well beyond the years of child rearing. But to, to Sarah's doubt in the face of a fact, trying desperately to hold on to and reach for a promise, God declares a question that beckons Sarah to believe again. And he says, is anything too hard for the Lord. And I say today to anybody in this service, anybody watching online, that maybe you've got a stubborn fact in your life, something that yes is true. We're not denying it. It's real. And you're facing it. And it looms large. But I ask today, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible that God can't reach in and turn it around and work it for good in your life? You see, the Christian's faith is not a denial of the facts of what we face. It is not wishful thinking. It is not the practice of putting out of mind every difficulty and every painful reality. No. You see, God does not expect you to pretend that the impossibility in your life is simply not there. So let me just say it. It's not a figment of your imagination. It's not a fabrication just of your feelings. That can happen too sometimes. But what you face, it's real. It's a fact. But the fact does not negate what is possible with God. Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men, they are possible with God. And I have come simply just to remind somebody that no matter what it is, no matter how big it is, how real it is, God is still able to minister in your point of need. 
And I would say, don't allow your situation to cripple you into paralysis. Do not accept it as permanent. Don't allow it to keep you from pursuing to know the higher truth that God is still a miracle worker, that God can still work it and turn it for good. Don't become complacent. Somebody needs to press beyond the reality of a problem and latch on to a promise that we find in God's word because we choose truth over facts. We choose the truth of God's promises over the facts we face in our lives. Jesus prayed over his disciples in John 17, right before he went to the cross. He's in Gethsemane, and he said, Lord, sanctify them by thy truth, and thy word is truth. Somebody here, you need to get a hold of a promise from the word of God, some truth that you can cling to, even though it might fly in the face of something you see every day of your life. Get a hold of the truth of God's word. Choose the truth over the fact and believe that God is working in your life. Here's a truth that we can remember. God is still able to do exceeding and abundantly above everything that we can ask or even think according to the power that worketh in us. I still believe that God is a miracle worker. I still believe that God is a restorer of everything that has been broken. I believe that he can and that he will. In the name of Jesus, do you believe that today? I wonder if you believe in the power of God. I wonder if I've, I've got a few people that haven't given up on God to reach in and reach down and touch in a way that only he can. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We choose truth over facts. Now, I would just like to visit our story from King Hezekiah for a few moments and We'll bring this in for a landing soon. At some point, you have to challenge what you know to be true with a higher truth. And that's what Hezekiah did in this passage. If we could just take a little moment. Kids are only going to school half the days nowadays, so, so we'll just have a little bit of history lesson if that's all right, some biblical history. Remember, at this point in history, when Hezekiah is reigning in Judah, that Israel is divided into two regions, as you see on the screen. In the north, it's the kingdom of Israel. They have the capital city of Samaria, the green region. In the south, you've got the kingdom of Judah, capital city, Jerusalem. This is where Hezekiah is ruling and reigning. It's the purple region on the map. They may have been divided politically, but, but they were still the same people. There were definitely tensions, but they were all God's people. They were all Jews. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, they fell to Assyria, King Hosea of Israel. And Hezekiah saw it happen. He would have watched from a distance as God's people in the northern region, they were taken captive. And, and that certainly is significant. Remember, they're brothers. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 17, then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land. And for three years, he besieged the city of Samaria, again, capital of the northern region. And finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, which happens to be Hezekiah's sixth year as king, Samaria fell. And the people of Israel, they were exiled to Assyria. And no doubt this would have left a major impression 
on King Hezekiah. And one other detail that I would like to make note of today is, is why Assyria decided to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. If you back up just a couple of verses, you see in, in, in verse number 3 of 2 Kings 17, King Shalmaneser of Assyria, they attacked King Hosea of Israel. And so Hosea was forced to pay heavy tribute to Assyria. Verse 4, but Hosea stopped paying the annual tribute. He conspired against Assyria, asking the king of Egypt to help him shake free of their power. And when the king of Assyria discovered this treachery, he seized Hosea and put him in prison. Understand today that the reason that Israel in the north was attacked and ultimately they were they, they were taken into captivity and the city fell. It was because Israel stopped paying tribute money to Assyria. That's what happens when you stop paying the bills. They turn the lights off. And so Assyria, they don't like it very much that, that they're no longer willing to pay the tribute, the annual tribute, and they come and they wipe them off the map. And Hezekiah, I'm just giving you some context this morning. He would have been aware of why, not just that it happened, but the why it happened, why they were attacked. He would have heard how Hosea decided to revolt against Assyria and default on their tribute payment. And all of these details makes this next point in the story about Hezekiah all the more significant. Because you go to chapter 18 of 2 Kings, verse 7 says, and this is kind of like an epitaph, a description of Hezekiah's reign in its essence. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. Praise God. Watch this. And he revolted against the king of Assyria, and he refused to pay him tribute. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like history repeating itself a little bit, doesn't it? It was Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, who had made Judah in the south a vassal or a servant state to the Assyrians. And for years, Judah had to pay tribute to, to the Assyrian leadership. But at one point in his reign, Hezekiah decided to put a stop to the nonsense. It's hard to say exactly when, when he, like Hosea in the north, revolted against Assyria. But many historians and theologians think that it maybe happened when there was a transition of power in Assyria. King Sennacherib, he comes into leadership there in this enemy nation. And, and perhaps Hezekiah used this time of transition as an opportunity to quietly withdraw his tribute payment, you know? Maybe Sennacherib won't notice if I stop paying my bills on time. It kind of reminds me of my internet provider, you know? Except they don't lower my payment, they just sneak it up every so often. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? They did, they did that to you too? It's like every six or seven months. Hey, everybody we charge money to, we need $10 more a month. I have a reminder in my phone to call them in May to just let them know and remind them that I am a loyal customer and I deserve that $70 break on my monthly bill. And if I didn't tell them, it would bump right back up. Kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Just kind of sneak in the bills a little bit. Hezekiah, maybe if I just pull this out now, pull out my tribute from, from Assyria, maybe they won't notice, I don't know. But they did. They saw it. Hezekiah likely assumed the throne in Judah in 715 B.C. And Sennacherib, if this is true, the transition theory, 
he assumed the throne of, of Assyria in 705 BC. And so, so it is likely that this withdrawal, this revolt of the tributary money, it may have been 10 years into Hezekiah's reign as king. I'm getting somewhere today. Understand that this great man of God, this revivalist, this king, he had done so much to return Judah to God. He had opened up the boarded doors of the temple and he had restored true worship to Jehovah. He reinstituted all the feasts and the festivals. After many, many generations of not having the Passover, he brought it back once and for all and it stayed for some time. That was Hezekiah. He tore down the idols. He tore down the pagan shrines. He even got rid of the bronze serpent, a part of Israel's history, a good thing from Israel's history, but it became a stumbling block for the people. And he said, I want none of it. He was so committed to God and so committed to revival and so committed to bringing the people back around this common, uh, this common thing, that worship to God. But evidently, there was one lingering thing that he did not take care of for a little while. And it was this tribute to the enemy, making payments to Assyria. But finally, Hezekiah makes his mind up to take care of business and stop giving to the enemy. Again, this is exactly why Israel in the north begins its descent and ends up in oblivion. Suffice it to say, this was a gutsy move. Hezekiah, you got guts doing what Israel in the north had done and seeing them go into destruction. Hezekiah knows what the enemy does in situations like this. They attack with a vengeance and their retribution is swift. And guess what? Assyria didn't like it. They didn't like that God's man was making a stand. And they did exactly what you would expect. They attacked. The Bible tells us in verse 13, same chapter, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came and attacked the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. Isn't that a funny thing? When you try to do something good, and you try to do something right, and you try to do what you know pleases the Lord, and the enemy is not happy about it. The enemy doesn't like it when the people of God decide. Even though they may have many other good things happening in their life, they decide, you know what, I am done with this one little area, this one little thing that I have been dealing with, that I have been been paying tribute to. I, I've been doing this for so many years. My predecessor did it, and it's just been a custom in my family and in the people for many, many years. But you know what? I'm done with this once and for all, and I am moving forward and stepping into the plan that God has for me. And in an effort to put Hezekiah back in his place, Assyria starts attacking some of the cities and towns of Judah. And the records from history tell us that they ended up taking 46 towns in total before they settled in Lachish. And they begin planning the siege of Jerusalem, the city of David. I just want to remind somebody today that any time you intentionally make a stand for God and seek to break free from sin, the devil, your enemy, your adversary, 
is not content to just leave you be and leave you alone. But it is common when we, when we do such things to face the attack of the enemy right about the time that you start making some progress in your walk with God. We might as well just come to expect it. Amen? Anybody ever done, done something like this? You, you got serious about something in your walk with God and just felt like all hell broke loose? You took a stand for what you know to be right. You got out of your comfort zone and you witnessed to somebody and it just feels like the devil starts attacking your family, attacking your mind and pushing back. You might as well expect it because we have an adversary. As a roaring lion, the Bible says, he roams about seeking whom he may devour. He's not happy about you serving God and living for Jesus. He hates you for it. He's envious of you for it. He doesn't have that second chance of mercy like you do. And so he tries whatever he can to push you back in line and to, and to see you go back into bondage once again. And this is what it was for Hezekiah. The enemy starts coming. And, and so knowing what's coming next, Hezekiah, he does what he can. He, he starts making the preparations to fortify the city of David. Music, why don't you come back? I'm, I'm wrapping up here. The Bible says when Hezekiah realized that Sennacherib also intended to attack Jerusalem, he consults with his officials, his military advisors, and, and they decided to stop the flow of the springs outside the city. They organized a huge work crew to stop the flow of the springs, cutting off the brook that ran through the fields. For they said, why should the king of Assyria come here and find plenty of water? We're going to make them thirsty. We'll starve them out, if you will. So Hezekiah worked hard. He repaired the broken sections of the wall, erecting towers and constructing a second wall outside the first. Something about when the enemy starts pushing back, you can kind of go one of two ways. And I love the way that Hezekiah went. He decided to double down and only strengthen more. He reinforced the supporting terraces in the city of David. He manufactured large numbers of weapons and shields, appointed military officers over the people, assembled them before him in the square at the city gate. And then Hezekiah encouraged the people by saying, be strong, be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, for there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us. We have the Lord our God to fight our battles for us. And Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. And so it's right about this time that the enemy comes in and begins posturing themselves and flaunting the facts of this engagement and their accomplishments. Somebody say the facts. Sennacherib sends three of his commanders, the Assyrian king, along with a very large army, no doubt, just to taunt God's people. And he confronts Hezekiah, and Hezekiah sends three of his own men to meet them. And so there's these six leaders, three from each side. They discuss the terms of engagement, and the enemy is demanding surrender. And a message was sent to be given to the king, Hezekiah, and this is some of what it said. We already... Uh, we didn't read this actually. But verse 19, 2 Kings 18. 
Then the Assyrian king's chief of staff told them, give this message to your king. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? And then Sennacherib's military commander starts speaking loud enough in Hebrew so that all the people on the wall of the city could hear. And he says this, don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you, people of God. Oh, the Lord will rescue us. Don't listen to him. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from our king? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Did God rescue, did any God rescue Samaria from my power? And right there, that last statement, it just got a little personal. Because Judah had seen Israel and its capital city, Samaria, fall firsthand. And here the enemy is reminding of them of it. Listing their accomplishments, boasting their spoils. They said, what God of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? And I can only imagine Hezekiah and God's people thinking to themselves, fact check, nobody. Nobody has ever been able to save themselves. No God has ever been able to deliver their people. And so what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? But the people were not silent. They were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah commanded them, do not answer him. If we engage the enemy on our own, we will fall. Because guess what? The enemy's track record is in fact filled with many victories. And there are many that have fallen at his hands. So we don't answer the enemy's threats by debating the enemy. We answer them by taking them to God. You see, how we respond to difficulty, that is the true picture of our character. The true measure of a man is not how he acts when things are easy, but when there is pressure applied. How do we respond in times of trouble? When Hezekiah was being threatened and attacked by the enemy, what was his response? Did he cave in and, and did he surrender to the enemy? Did he send word to another nation to come and help him like Hosea had done in the north? Was the looming reality of the enemy's strength enough to make him waver and cower in fear? One more point. If you back up one generation, you will see that Hezekiah's dad, wicked Ahaz, was also in a situation where the enemy was coming in. It was a different enemy, but still breathing down his neck. But instead of running to God and trusting him for help, Ahaz sought help from the world. In fact, Ahaz ran to Assyria and offered them as that vassal state starting to pay tribute, which is why we're in this mess in the first place. Just one generation earlier, making this poor mistake. It was the difficulty that was intended to drive Ahaz back to God, but he chose rather to run further from him. And the epitaph over the life of wicked King Ahaz is 2 Chronicles 28, 22. Even during the time of trouble, King Ahaz continued to reject the Lord. 
But Hezekiah did what his father did not do. And I love the contrast in the word of God. During his time of trouble, he didn't reject the Lord. He did what his father couldn't. And he did what what Hosea in the north did not do. And he ran to God for help. And our opening text, and I close today. He received the letter from the messengers. The letter flaunting the accomplishments, touting the victories. And he went to the Lord's house. And he takes this scroll, this letter, whatever form it was in. And the Bible says that literally he spreads it out before God. No doubt feeling hopeless and feeling helpless, realizing that his meager army is no match for the hundreds of thousands in the Assyrian camp. And the Bible says that he went to the temple, laid it up before God, and he makes this declaration. It is true, Lord. Somebody say, it is true. It was a fact. The kings of Assyria, you know what, God, they really have done everything that they said they've done. They did wipe out Sepharvaim and Hannah and Iva and all the nations listed. They did wipe out and desecrate and decimate Samaria and Israel. They did it, God. It is true, Lord. He did not downplay the dilemma, but he acknowledged its validity and severity. Understand that God does not ask us to downplay our pain, does not ask us to downplay our frustration. He is wanting all of that to draw you closer to him. You see, Hezekiah knew the fact. Yes, it's true. Yes, they've done those things. But I am not going to stay here crippled by my present reality. I choose truth over facts. I also know the ultimate truth that God can deliver me, that God can set me free, that God can wipe out the enemy. He can save by many. He can save by few. And he is on my side. Oh, worship the Lord here today if you believe that. Give him praise today if you believe that in the house of God. He is on my side. There is a higher truth that I can cling to and I can latch on to. Hallelujah. Of course, they could destroy them. They weren't gods at all. Only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. And so now, O oh Lord, our God, rescue us from his power. And then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O oh Lord, are God. That's the declaration that the people of God must make in times of trouble, in times of intensifying pressure. You alone, O oh Lord, are God. There is nobody else that sits beside you. Nobody else that can take me down or take me me out as long as you are on my side oh Jesus it was true that the seemingly invincible army of the enemy was at his door but he didn't allow what he knew to be true to keep him from trusting in God there was a higher truth he chose truth over facts and because he went to the Lord's house drew nigh to the man of God 
sought God's face in prayer, laid out the issue before him and said, God, I can't handle this. I can't do this on my own. God stepped in. And that night, the Bible says, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and without Hezekiah or his people or his army lifting a finger, God killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And Sennacherib goes home in retreat and his own men end up taking his life the next day. You see, God can do it. God can take a dead end and an impossibility and he can work it if we will just trust him, if we will just reach for him, if we will just believe the truth of his word over the facts in our face, God can do a work. If you believe that with any fiber in your being, I wish you would just reach for him right now. Come on, I don't know what maybe you've carried into the sanctuary today. You don't know what your neighbor may be walking through today. Maybe they've been weighed down by the facts. Maybe they've been weighed down by some difficult, looming difficulty. But God is able. God is still able. God is still able. Come on, God is asking the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? It beckons us today to believe once again. Stop believing more in your dilemma than in your God. Stop believing more in what you're facing than what God can do. He is sovereign. He is in control. And He is able. It is true, Lord. We're not denying it. We're not downplaying it, but we're reaching beyond it. We're seeking to get a hold of a higher truth today that you are still a healer. You are still a deliverer. You are still a restorer, God. You are still able to touch minds and hearts. God, you are still able to bring things together that are broken. You can do it, God. You can do it, Jesus. You can do it, Jesus. If you believe, if you believe, I, I just I wonder if faith is rising in your spirit again. I wonder if you would stand to your feet right now and just lift your hands in the sanctuary. And with your hands, just begin to lift your voice. Come on, we are the people that stare in the face of natural disasters and hurricanes and mudslides and volcanoes. We stand and look in the face of all of that and we choose truth over facts. We know that God can still work. We know that the kingdom can still be expanded. We know that God can still have his name, the name of Jesus, be exalted in all the earth. But we got to reach for it. We got to reach for it just one more time in this house. If you would just reach, if you would just stretch, don't accept it, 
but reach for something deeper. Reach for something higher. We reach for you, God. We reach for you, God. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.